We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Away we go, episode 151 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, September 23rd, 2021, the first full day of fall in the year 2021. We on Wednesday had the fall equinox, also known as the start of fall, and it is on this Thursday that we are fully fledged in the season of fall. Uh, there is no better weather season in sports than the fall. I mean, when I was a kid, I hated the fall because the fall meant that it was time to go back to school. But as an adult, at least numerically, uh, the fall is a great time of year, right? As a sports fan. I mean, no other weather season tops the fall. NFL and college football seasons underway, MLB regular season wrapping up, and then the MLB postseason. The NBA and NHL seasons get going. Heck, the Capitals are conducting their first practice of training camp on this Thursday. Yeah, Capitals training camp is beginning today. There's a lot going on, and so it's good to have you with us on the Al Galdi podcast. No other podcast or show like this one when it comes to talking D.C. sports five days a week, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m. each weekday. Big game for the Washington football team at the Buffalo Bills this Sunday afternoon at one. What Ron Rivera on Tuesday called a measuring stick game. Here's a question for you. What do you trust more for Sunday? Washington's offense or Washington's defense? On the one hand, the Bills' defense has been great so far this season, and the Bills' offense has been meh so far this season, so that would lead you to think, hey, the Washington defense is more trustworthy. But on the other hand, uh, Washington's defense, uh, not so good so far this season. Well, we on Wednesday had post-practice press conferences for Scott Turner and Jack Del Rio. And so we're going to spend a lot of time over the next two segments after this one exploring what's going on with Washington's offense 
and Washington's defense. Uh, Scott said some really interesting things about Taylor Heineke, including why Heineke has had the career that he has had and what he ultimately can be as an NFL quarterback. Jack got into the defensive struggles, what's going on with Chase Young, and a lot more. Chase himself spoke as well. I will talk Nationals as Josiah Gray was back to being good on Wednesday night. Good for him. He needed that. It was terrific in a 7-5 win at the Miami Marlins. Speaking of being good, uh, Juan Soto was excellent again. Got on base five more times. Is Juan Soto now the leading contender for National League MVP? And I'll talk Orioles. They lost on Wednesday night 4-3 at the Philadelphia Phillies. But the bigger item was some Orioles news. Brandon Hyde will be back as Orioles manager for next season. I have some thoughts on that. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Rick in Maine of something that I talked about a few weeks ago, that special teams aren't a third of the game of football. You know that saying, special teams are a third of the game. Uh, Literally speaking, they're not. Uh, Special team snaps account for somewhere between like 15 to 20 percent of a team's total snap count in a season. Special teams are more like a sixth of the game or a fifth of the game. Uh, Writes Rick, love the show and appreciate all that you do. Thank you, Rick. Continues, Rick. Anyway, special teams are absolutely a third of the game. You cannot measure the significance based on the percentage of snaps. Special teams are significant for their role in the almighty field position battle. Special teams are the difference between the opposing team starting its drive on the 10 versus the 40, or our team starting a drive from midfield versus struggling to avoid a safety being backed up against the end zone. Where the ball is isn't the only important thing. The team that has possession of the ball the most usually wins, right? Good special teams units will create turnovers and avoid turnovers. A good special teams unit also will create a few scores in a season. That's like free money, man. There is the psychological aspect too. Oh boy. Imagine having to drive the ball 80 to 90 yards every time you need a score or having to defend a short field every time the opposing team has the ball. Special teams are big. Do you remember the 2010 San Diego Chargers, who had the league's number one offense and number one defense, but had the worst special teams unit? The Chargers missed the playoffs that year. The Chargers special teams sucked. Undoubtedly, the Chargers staff did not place an importance on special teams play when determining the roster. Well, uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, So look, my contention isn't that special teams don't matter. They matter a lot. My point is that special teams don't matter as much as offense and defense. If for some bizarre reason you could only be good in two of the three phases of football, but you got to pick those two phases, you would pick offense and defense, and it wouldn't even be a debate. But obviously, you want to be good in all three phases. Uh, No doubt, the 2010 Chargers did have one of the worst special teams units in NFL history. But do you know who had one of the worst special teams units in the NFL last season? The Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, They were 26th in the NFL in special teams DVOA per football outsiders during the 2020 regular season. And yet, the Bucs won the Super Bowl. Being good on special teams is not a prerequisite for having a good season. You want to be good on special teams, But you don't have to be good on special teams in order to have a good season. Offense and defense matter much more. Well, if your lawn matters to you, and it should, and you don't like 
how your lawn looks and you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weedman take care of your lawn. You work hard. You deserve to enjoy your weekends and watch football, especially now that we're in the fall. Let Weedman handle your lawn. Weedman cares for your lawn so you don't have to. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. And Weedman right now is offering something really special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. You see, Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not someone somewhere in like the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. If you have a certain area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. You're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn, if you're not satisfied with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. Now's the perfect time. Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. A beautiful spring lawn starts in the fall. And like I said, Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. That price is a steal. The price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571 340 3400. You can hit pause right now and make the phone call. Stop putting this off. 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. I want you to get that deal. Uh, you can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. All right. The one and one Washington football team is at the one and one Buffalo Bills this Sunday afternoon at one. A major test for this Washington offense. The Bills so far this season are number two in the NFL in total defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Pitched a shutout in Week 2, a 35-0 win at the Miami Dolphins. But, of course, Washington has, as its starting quarterback, Taylor Heineke. And, as we know by now, anything is possible with Tay-Tay at QB. Uh, Washington on Wednesday practiced in its indoor practice facility, i.e. the bubble. Uh, The only offensive player on Washington's injury report for Wednesday was Antonio Gibson, who was listed as having been a limited participant in practice due to a shoulder. He was dealing with that last week. Ended up playing in the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field last Thursday night. Also at practice on Wednesday, by the way, was Curtis Samuel running along a sideline with a helmet on. 
Uh, Samuel remains on the reserve injured list due to the groin injury. I will spare you a discussion of where exactly we might be with Samuel and his never-ending comeback from this groin injury, but it was nice that we saw that. Uh, Washington placed Samuel on the reserve injured list on September 10th. A player on the reserve injured list is eligible to start practicing after spending three weeks on the list. Uh, His team then has 21 days to place him back on its active roster. So we are getting closer to when Samuel could potentially start practicing. Anyway, Scott Turner spoke on Wednesday via post-practice press conference. Taylor Heineke on Sunday at the Bills will be making his third start as a Washington quarterback, regular season and postseason. As there's more tape on Heineke as a Washington quarterback and teams, in theory, get more of a book on how to play Heineke, what kind of things is Scott looking for from Heineke? I think it's just consistently making good decisions. Um, You know, I think, you know, obviously they look at like a quarterback's tendencies and we look at those things too, but a lot of it's the, they're defending the offense, you know, they're defending the concepts. um, And then, you know, okay, where does the quarterback like to throw, you know, one way or another, or certain receiver he likes or a certain route, you know, concept where if this concept gets called, the ball always goes there. And, you know, we try to look for those things, but, you know, Taylor does a nice job of, um, one of his biggest skills is his vision and he sees things well. Um, So that enables him to make good decisions and and spread the ball around. And note what Scott said of Heineke late in that cut. Quote, one of his biggest skills is his vision and he sees things well. End quote. Yeah, that's something that we've been talking about on the podcast. Heineke is decisive. Heineke processes things quickly. Heineke knows Scott Turner's offense well. Scott Turner and Taylor Heineke go way back. Scott was the only NFL coach who visited Heineke at Old Dominion. Scott has had Heineke now on three different teams. Heineke was with the Minnesota Vikings during Scott's time as Vikings quarterbacks coach. Heineke was with the Carolina Panthers during Scott's time as Panthers quarterbacks coach and during Ron Rivera's time as Panthers head coach. And now Heineke is with Washington during Scott's time as Washington offensive coordinator. Scott on Wednesday on the perceived deficiencies of Taylor Heineke that led to him being undrafted out of Old Dominion and to having bounced around the NFL? Well, that's a, it's a pretty complicated question. Um, it's not the way you asked it, but just the answer that he's from a small school. Okay. He was not recruited out of high school. Uh, he, you know, he started as a, you know, an FCS school that became a, you know, FBS or whatever, um, was not invited to the combine. Um, and he's little, you know, so, all of those factors kind of led to him, you know, flying under the radar. Now, he, he's a very good athlete. Um, you know, we signed him in Minnesota as an undrafted free agent, and he made our 53-man roster because of the way he performed in the preseason. Um, the, as far as the sticking on the roster goes, you know, he's had some untimely injuries, and I think that's set him back his time. And then also, you know, people, for whatever reason – they fall back to their original evaluation on people. So they, he, he's always going to be seen as an undrafted guy until he you know, continues to do the things he's been doing, but he's got to do it over time. As soon as like a guy like that, he can have five great games, and if he has one bad game, it's like, oh, well, here's the undrafted guy that everybody knows. And that's I'm not saying it's fair or not fair, but perception's reality, and that's just how things work. So you know, when you have somebody like that, you know, they got to do above and beyond to get an opportunity. Fortunately for us and for Taylor, he was able to get that opportunity, and he's really played the way that he's played in the preseason. If you look back on the on the tape, and, you know, he's earned the confidence of this team and, you know, everybody around him. 
Yeah, I thought that that was a really interesting answer from Scott Turner on Wednesday. I think that the best, most objective way of evaluating Taylor Heineke involves asking yourself this question with whatever you think. If Heineke had been drafted in a first round, would you still feel this way? In other words, whatever you think about what Heineke has done, if he had been drafted in a first round, as opposed to being a guy who entered the NFL as an undrafted free agent and who was bounced around the NFL, would you still feel however you feel? Because to me, if Heineke had been drafted in a first round, the dismissal of him by so many, the hypercriticism of him, would not be in effect. I mean, if Dwayne Haskins, over his first four games as a Washington quarterback, had the body of work that Taylor Heineke has over his first four games as a Washington quarterback, people would have already been measuring Dwayne for a gold jacket. How you enter the NFL and what you have done in the NFL prior to doing whatever it is that you are doing impacts how what you are doing is perceived. And that's understandable. And that is to a certain extent warranted. But the key phrase there is to a certain extent. Because football is so circumstance, situation, and system dependent, nothing matters more when it comes to what to think of a player than what that player is doing in the moment. And what Taylor Heineke is doing in the moment is impressive. And maybe, just maybe, this quarterback with this offensive coordinator in this system with these teammates on this team at this point in the quarterback's career, makes for a perfect fit. And so with all of that, Scott Turner on Wednesday was asked a question that all of us as fans have been pondering. What ultimately can Taylor Heineke be as an NFL quarterback? I I don't know. Those are hard questions to ask. I, I think that he can consistently play the way he's been playing. You know, there's nothing that says that. And Um, there's going to be ups and downs. I mean, this league is very challenging and, uh, you know, the best players in this league, you know, have tough, tough games. And, um, but, you know, his ability to kind of push through that and, um, just the skill set he has, like I was saying, with the, with the accuracy, uh, with the decision-making and the vision, um, and then his athleticism, you know, he's got the skill set to, uh, to, to continue to be successful. All right, so Scott gave the right answer. Uh, It would do neither Scott nor Heineke any good for Scott to take a stance on what Heineke can ultimately be as an NFL quarterback. But the key thing that Scott said in that answer was, quote, I think he can consistently play the way he's been playing, end quote. If Heineke consistently plays the way that he has been playing as a Washington quarterback, then that is a viable NFL starting quarterback and then some. Remember those two stunning stats that I talked about on Tuesday's show, episode 149. There are 45 NFL quarterbacks who have each had at least 100 dropbacks since the start of the 2020 season. We're talking regular season and postseason here. Taylor Heineke, among those 45 quarterbacks in that span, is number one in both pro football focuses, big time throw rate and PFFs turnover worthy play rate. He has a big-time throw rate of 8.1%. He has a turnover-worthy play rate of just 0.7%. Yeah, Taylor Heineke, number one in each of those categories. A jaw-dropping truth about how well this guy has played as a Washington quarterback, contrary to what the Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters, 
the Tay-Tay haters, the Taters, as I call them, will tell you. Now, providing some fuel for the Taters this past Thursday night uh, was Heineke's fourth quarter interception. Uh, second and seven at the Washington 22 with Washington nursing a 27-26 lead. Taylor Heineke threw a fourth quarter shotgun interception to corner James Bradbury for the first turnover in the game. Ensuing Giants offensive drive started at the Washington 20, resulted in Graham Godot's 35-yard field goal for a 29-27 Giants lead with two minutes left in the fourth quarter. The pick was a bad play by Heineke. Make no mistake. Uh, I know that some said that the play call was a bad play call by Scott Turner. Uh, I did not see it that way. Washington still could have used points, was only leading 27-26. I'm a big believer in being aggressive on offense, and especially considering that there was plenty of time left. Uh, The Giants had two of their timeouts left, and you still have the two-minute warning calling for a pass on the play that resulted in that Heineke fourth quarter interception was not some Looney Tunes play call, in my opinion. Scott Turner on Wednesday on the Heineke pick. Yeah, I mean, they had all their timeout. They had just they had just used their first timeout. Um, it was outside of two minutes. You still have the two-minute warning. You know, we're I wasn't just gonna we're not just gonna run the ball and just give them back, give them the ball. We want to win the win the game on offense. Um, we're always gonna factor in to all that the clock you know, whatever, where we are on the field. We were backed up. You know, we had gotten the one first down. And we're just trying to win the game off on offense. And, you know, we're going to play aggressive. And I wouldn't change anything um, from the play call. And then and then Taylor, I think he just, you know, kind of overthought it. Um, you know, it's a progression. He kind of skipped a step. And uh, Terry actually did a pretty nice job of running a little kind of running interference. And, and that's why he was delayed um, a little bit. But it was just Taylor, you know, kind of forcing the ball where it shouldn't go. And they made a play, you know, and then fortunately our defense stopped them and we were able to go get the field goal and win the game. But that was a that was a tough couple of minutes waiting for that ball to come back to us. Yes, uh, those were a tough few minutes. And this Sunday's game at Buffalo could be a tough game for Washington's offense. The Bills defense has been one of the best defenses in the NFL since the start of last season. The Bills head coach, Sean McDermott, was the Panthers defensive coordinator for six seasons, 2011 through 2016. Scott Turner was a Panthers offensive quality control coach in 2011 and 2012. So he got to see up close what McDermott is capable of with a defense. Scott on Wednesday on how McDermott's Bills defense is different from his Panthers defense. Yeah, there's a lot like the base of the defense is is very similar. Um, He's put, you know, there's wrinkles that have gone to it, just like kind of our offense has changed um, over time, you know, with when you're adjusting the different things that people will do. Um, You know, Coach McDermott, I I have a lot of respect for him just being able to building and watch him work and watching the way that he, um, you know, worked with the players and what he demanded of them. Uh, And you really saw that group grow from 2011 to 2012 and not surprised at all with the success that, that he's had as a head coach. And a big part of the Bills' defense is the defensive line. Uh, You have edge rusher Jerry Hughes. You have interior defensive lineman Star Lotulale, who, by the way, did not practice on Wednesday due to a groin ailment. Also, Lotulale played for the Panthers from 2013 through 2017. Scott Turner on Wednesday on the Bills' defensive line. 
Their defensive line, whether it's run or pass, they're very active. You know, they got about eight guys that they'll roll through there, so they always are fresh and they're coming after you. Um, you know, they, again, credit to uh, Coach McDermott and those players. You know, they play hard. They play hard from the first snap onto the last. So you got to keep coming at them um, because they're gonna they're gonna keep coming at you for sure. And so I think that the the activity. You know, they don't if the, if you block them, they don't stay blocked. You know, they fight to get off block. So our guys got to do a great job of finishing. You know, and, that, and those are the issues uh, that you'll see. And they'll play some multiple looks, um, and then they'll, you know, they'll stunt and pinch as well. And helping to fuel that Bills defensive line on Sunday will be the crowd. Uh, this game at the Bills will be Taylor Heineke's fifth game for Washington in the regular season or postseason. But his first road game, each of the first four games, was a home game. Uh, both Heineke and Ron Rivera downplayed this in post-practice press conferences on Tuesday. Here was Scott Turner's take on Wednesday. Yeah, and we prepare for it as far as like, you know, working silent count. We have crowd no- had crowd noise at practice today. Um, you know, and, and a lot of that is just do a great job with our communication. Uh, once the ball's snapped, you know, then you just try to get him to go play. You know, I don't want to make too much of it for Taylor where he makes it more than it is, you know. Just what I stress with him is make sure you do a great job communicating. Make sure you're looking at guys when you're talking to them so they can also read your lips as well as, you know, try to hear you, you know. Um, and then we got to get out of the huddle and get to the line of scrimmage so we don't get t- stuck against the clock where they can time up the count that way. Also, but I mean, he's just got to go play, you know. What I mean, and that's what he's done a great job of, and, and and you've seen that, you know. And and I think he'll do that, and you know, we'll get rolling, you know, get rolling early, and it'll be just like any other game. Yeah, I do think that a little too much is being made of this game at the Bills being Heineke's first road game as a Washington quarterback. I know that the Bills fans get into it, okay. I know that the Bills mafia is legit, but whatever happens in the game. It's going to be far more about the matchups and who plays well than the noise being made by the crowd. Now, the noise isn't going to help Washington. I will concede that. But Heineke has been very composed so far in his outings as a Washington quarterback. I'd be surprised and disappointed if he got all frazzled uh, by the Bills Mafia on Sunday. Uh, now, of course, Washington's offense isn't just about Taylor Heineke. Uh, here was Scott Turner on Wednesday on what he has seen from Washington's offensive line through two games. The 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in Week 1 and the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 2. I think they did a nice job um, this past week. You know, the first week, you know, we did some good things. We ran the ball well. There were some issues that we had with some protection. Um, and it was, a, you know, obviously a challenging group. And then this past week, you know, we protected really well. I mean, we threw 46 passes, but we dropped back with you count scrambles. And then the one sack close to 50 times, um, which is a lot, obviously. And to only give up one sack that was really – Taylor's fault. I mean, it was the first third down, and he tried to run out of there and, and lose his yards. You know, that ball's got it should have been out of his hand. Um, you know, that wasn't something where we got pressure right now. Uh, there were some pressures, and you know, those are things that we're continuing to work on. But I felt like going from one week to the next, um, our, the guys did a much much better job. And we, you know, they they we we did a nice job blocking in the run. We just, you know, it was more of a pass heavy type of game. Yeah, the two knocks on Washington's offensive line so far this season to me are, one, the pass blocking and the loss to the Chargers, and two, the penalties. Uh, Brandon Sheriff had two penalties and the loss to the Chargers. Samuel Cosme had two penalties in the win over the Giants. But otherwise, Washington's offensive line has been pretty good through two games, especially 
from a run-blocking perspective, uh, also pretty good, has been Terry McLaurin. One of the best parts of the win over the Giants was McLaurin being much more of a factor than he was in the loss to the Chargers. McLaurin in the win over the Giants, 11 receptions for 107 yards and a touchdown on 14 targets. McLaurin in the loss to the Chargers had four receptions for 62 yards on four targets and wasn't even targeted in the first half. Uh, McLaurin in just the first half of the win over the Giants had six receptions for 60 yards and a touchdown on seven targets. And think about this, McLaurin is producing despite both Washington's number one quarterback and number two receiver being on the reserve injured list, right? Ryan Fitzpatrick was supposed to be Washington's starting quarterback. Curtis Samuel was supposed to be Washington's number two receiver. Each guy is on the reserve injured list, and yet still McLaurin is producing. That's all that this guy has done for Washington over two plus seasons. Produce. McLaurin has had a bunch of excuses not to produce, and yet all he has done is produce. Scott Turner on Wednesday on Terry McLaurin. I think, you know, Terry's just always, he's just locked in, you know, and he's a serious guy. Um, and he plays hard, and he finds a way to get it done. You know, sometimes, you know, the way he catches the ball is not necessarily exactly how, you know, you would n- normally see someone adjust to it, but, you know, he gets it done. And, um, you know, he doesn't take plays off. Um, you know, he has a good understanding of, you know, finding the open holes in zone, and it's hard to stay with him, you know, when you play man-to-man. So, you know, no matter who the quarterback is, um, you know, when guys get open, you know, the ball goes their way. And, and we try to find a way as a coaching staff to get the ball in his hands. And, um, you know, he continues to do that. He gets open. And then uh, the other thing that we, like I was saying earlier, he produces after the catch. Yes, he does. Uh, McLaurin in the 2020 regular season ranked number 10 in the NFL in Yak for ESPN at 490. McLaurin is great. We always hope that things are going great in your life, but we know that it's not always the case that things are going great in your life. Bad things happen, and I want to tell you about a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged, Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through, big Washington football team fans. Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the D.C. trial lawyers. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-851-9899. That's 202-851-9899. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sends you. Make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling Paulson and Nace at 202-851-9899. Nine nine. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family 
Take care of yours. Big spot for the Washington football team's defense this Sunday afternoon at the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Washington's defense, as we know, has been underwhelming and disappointing so far this season. Is that going to continue on Sunday at the Bills, or is this Washington defense finally going to play like the defense was supposed to play this season? So Washington through week two is just number 18 in the NFL in total defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Jack Del Rio spoke on Wednesday via post-practice press conference. His Washington defense last season got off to a so-so start and then was much better as the season went on. A softening of the schedule and of the opposing quarterbacks uh, did have something to do with that. But the defense did get better too. Might we be seeing a similar journey this season? A sluggish start for the defense, but then the defense gets better as the season goes on. Jack on Wednesday. Yeah, we just we just want to go out and compete each week, uh, learn from any mistakes that were made and, and continue to grow as we go forward and, and um, get better as the year goes on. You know, I think that's that's the case regardless of where you start. You want to you know, you want to continually work on things. That's what us coaches do. You know, we're, we're constantly uh, striving for, for more, for better. Um, the effort's been outstanding. The, the energy that we're playing with has been outstanding. I think, uh, you know, last week in, in key moments we came up big, had to have stops. And uh, at the end of the day, it's about winning games, right? And, and so we need to continue to do all we can to bring that energy, bring that fight, that competitiveness, and, and clean up some of the things that haven't been quite as good as we expect. When it comes to this Sunday's game at Buffalo, the Bills have not been very good offensively so far this season. The Bills threw week two just 26th out of 32 NFL teams in total offense per DVOA. Uh, Josh Allen, who was great last season, has not been good so far this season. Allen is just 23rd out of 32 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL and ESPN's total QBR at 44.6. Interestingly, one spot ahead of Josh Allen in total QBR is Taylor Heineke at 45.6. Allen has a yards per pass attempt this season of just 5.35. That's brutal. Uh, Allen has a completion percentage this season of just 55.95. That's not good. Uh, Those numbers are really, really bad. But Allen, like I said, was great last season. Josh Allen finished last regular season third among all qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in total QBR at 76.6. Jack Del Rio on Wednesday on the challenges of facing this Bills offense. Yeah, I think it starts with, uh, with the quarterback. Uh, big, strong, athletic guy, um, you know, able to extend plays, uh, you know, tremendous arm, arm talent, arm strength, um, tough guy to bring down, big, big, strong guy. So, um, you know, they've got, they've got really good skill people. Uh, you know, the back's a good runner. Uh, so we just feel like it's a good group, you know, that we're going against and we're going to need to play well. Yeah, the back is Devin Singletary, who's averaging 6.42 yards per carry over 24 carries so far this season. A major issue for the Bills offensively through two games has been Josh Allen being pressured. Uh, Allen, per sport radar, has been pressured on 30.8% 
of his dropbacks. Washington's pass rush in the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in Week 1 was bad. Washington's pass rush in the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 2 was good. Will Washington's pass rush again be good this Sunday? It is worth noting that Matt Ioannidis did not practice on Wednesday due to a knee. Remember, uh, he got banged up during the win over the Giants, although he did come back into the game. Uh, But Sunday's game at the Bills is an opportunity for Chase Young and Montez Sweat. The Bills starting left tackle Deion Dawkins has struggled through two games. He has an overall grade for pro football focus of just 53.7. Chase Young has been mixed so far this season. He has not been as bad as some people have suggested, but you can't say that he has been at his best. Uh, Montez Sweat has been good so far this season, was really good in the win over the Giants. Uh, Montez in that game had a sack and per the NFL's next-gen stats totaled a career-high seven pressures. Jack on Wednesday on where he has seen the biggest growth in Montez Sweat. Uh, Probably maturity, um, comfort in understanding of what we're doing. I, I think, you know, we have great competition between Montez and and Chase and um, both excellent football players. Now, Ron Rivera, during his day after the game Zoom press conference last Friday, admitted that teams are chipping Chase Young and Montez Sweat more so far this season. Jack on Wednesday on whether teams are playing Chase and Montez differently through two games. And then you'll hear a follow-up exchange with Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. No, not really. I, I mean, I don't think so. It's, uh, you know, they're, they're going to garner a certain amount of attention. Um, and that's pretty normal. And to that point, is it just expected when you're an elite pass rusher like that, you're going to get chipped and doubled at times? And mm-hmm. Do players ever get frustrated? And how do you kind of coach them through that? Yeah, we try and do some things to make sure that uh, we take advantage of them doing those things. Uh, but, but yeah, that's that's part of it. You know, that's... You know, uh, that was part of it for Khalil Mack, Julius Peppers, Vaughn, Vaughn Miller, any of the guys that I've had. That's, that's part of playing, uh, you know, defensive end in this league. Yeah, Jack's right about that. All of the great edge rushers have to deal with things like chips and double teams. You have to find a way to make plays. Now, again, Chase Young has not been invisible through two games, but he hasn't been at his best. Uh, Chase Young did do a post-practice press conference on Wednesday. Here he was on his lack of eye-popping stats so far this season. Well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's only game two. So, you know, what, what, you know what I'm saying? So the number's going to come. The number's going to be there. I ain't really tripping over that. Right now, uh, my biggest focus, um, our biggest focus is the defense, is uh, everybody just to do their individual job. And then at the end of the day, it should all come together. And that's exactly the right mindset. Chase on Wednesday on his take on what's going on with Washington's defense so far. It's just the little things. Um, we just going to have to, we got to correct. Uh, and that's what we're working to do. Um, so, you know, it's, it's little things here, little thing there on this play that it might pop. So we really just got to get them things tight, man, and just get them under wraps. And uh, that's what we're what we working to do. We're working. They be working. Uh, What people have to understand about Chase Young is that his impact can't only be measured by stats or even by what you see. And I know a lot of you listening already get this, but Chase Young's mere presence can be a factor. Like, don't you think that part of why Montez Sweat and Jonathan Allen have gotten off to fast starts this season is Chase Young? 
him commanding attention opens things up for Sweat and Allen. Not that those guys haven't been good. They have been good. Not that Chase can't be better. He can be better. But there's a lot more to what Chase provides than just sacks and pressures. Like, you certainly can't just look at the traditional stats to measure the impact of Chase Young. You can't even just look at the advanced stats to measure the impact of Chase Young. Now, a knock on Chase has been that his pass rushing repertoire isn't as diverse as it needs to be. That if he doesn't win initially with speed and power, he doesn't win. Uh, This has actually been a thing on social media. Jack on Wednesday was asked about this. Social media was brought up. And uh, here's what Jack had to say. Yeah, I I think um, to to even refer to the social media experts would be um, a bad idea, I think. So... Uh, I, I like the way our guys are working at their trade. Uh, I think uh, Chase in particular is an excellent football player. And, yeah, we're, we're just going to continue to coach, continue to play, continue to uh, work around being productive for each other. Yeah, Jack don't want to hear about no social media. Uh, I should note this too. Jack on Wednesday disputed the idea that Washington's pass rush in the week one loss to the Chargers was not very good. Here's what Jack said. I think I think we were providing pressure the first week as well. So I, I, mean, I don't know what the uh, analytical data says, but I know the quarterback's not comfortable back there. Yeah, uh, I don't know, man. Justin Herbert looked pretty comfortable in week one. Uh, for the record, Washington, in the loss to the Chargers, had a pressure rate for pro football focus of just 12%, which was the lowest by any team in the NFL in the Sunday games of week one. So uh, that's what the analytical data says. Uh, Of course, Washington's defense isn't just about the defensive line. We've seen some rough moments for Washington's linebackers through two games. Jamin Davis was not great in the week one loss to the Chargers. John Bostick had problems in the week two win over the Giants. Jack on Wednesday was asked for his thoughts on his linebackers so far this season. Uh, I'm really not in the assess the, the group business. I think our football team is playing hard. I think our guys are um, are doing a solid job. I think there's some areas where we can clean it up, and that's at all three levels. I think you know D-line, linebacker, DBs, uh, there's some things that have been really good, and there's some things that we need to do a little bit better. Yes, there are. Uh, something that's interesting with Washington's defense is that Washington has gone with a 5-1-5 alignment a decent amount so far this season. Five defensive linemen, one linebacker, and five defensive backs. Now, conceptually, this makes sense. Get your best players on the field. The defensive line is Washington's biggest strength. You have five good defensive linemen. Linebacker isn't a particular strength for the team, at least not right now. So go with five defensive linemen, one linebacker, and five defensive backs. Uh, Now, Washington isn't doing this the majority of the time or anything like that, but Washington is going with this look. Jack on Wednesday on the five defensive linemen look. Yeah, and I mean, it depends on how you how you look at it. You know, um, you know, where where you see that that it might be, you know, three defensive linemen and three linebackers and, you know, uh, in terms of role and assignment, or, or the DBs that are involved maybe playing linebacker, uh, you know, maybe maybe involved as as nickelbacks or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I think you know we have different packages we're going to utilize throughout the year, um, and um, some some include extra linemen, some include less linemen, 
Um, I think, you know, I think in last week's game we had, you know, we had a little bit of a mixture where we had some some five one, some five two, uh, and then we got down as low as uh, as three, uh, three two, you know, or, or three one. So, um, what we're doing with our front and our people, we've we've worked hard in camp. We, we've we've got a package of defenses, and you know, we we'll want to be able to execute those and play well on on game day. And that's a really good point by Jack. Just because you have a 5-1-5 look in terms of guys' main positions doesn't mean that each of those guys in the look is playing his usual position. Like perhaps one of the defensive backs in that look, say Landon Collins, is playing the role of a linebacker in that 5-1-5 look. Uh, Also, what about these opening drives for the defense through two games? Why has Washington's defense looked particularly inept on the first offensive drive for the opposing team in each game. The loss to the Chargers in week one, Chargers' first offensive drive, was the first offensive drive of the game. 10 plays, 75 yards, resulted in running back Austin Eckler's first quarter, first and goal, three-yard shotgun handoff touchdown run. The win over the Giants in week two, Giants' first offensive drive, 11 plays, 79 yards, resulted in Daniel Jones's first quarter, second and goal, six-yard shotgun quarterback draw touchdown run. Jack on Wednesday on if anything has jumped out to him as to why Washington's defense has gotten off to a bad start in each of the first two games. No, it's, it's definitely not on my PowerPoint, don't start fast. That's, that's not up there. So, um, no, obviously, you know, we want to start fast as a group. We want to help our football team. Uh, build early momentum, and uh, we haven't we haven't got that done the first two weeks. So, yeah, that's that's clearly a point of emphasis. Yeah, Washington's defense getting gashed by opposing offenses on the first drives of games needs to stop. Uh, that has not been a good look. That has been a very bad look. That has been honestly one of the worst things about the Washington defense so far this season. One more thing from Jack's post-practice press conference on Wednesday, and maybe this is just me. But I find it hysterical how much Jack doesn't like answering so many of these questions. You can just tell. Uh, And how Jack has no interest in answering anything about strategy or game plan. And I don't blame him for that. Like, Jack should not be up there at the podium revealing things about Washington's strategy for the next game, Washington's game plan for the next game. But, you know, you have Jack Del Rio. He is this no-nonsense, tough-guy defensive coordinator, former NFL linebacker. And whenever he gets asked these questions about strategy or game plan, he just has no interest in giving answers. And he doesn't sugarcoat that. Uh, I present to you the following exchange on Wednesday with Adam Kilgore, national sports reporter for the Washington Post. Hey, Jack. um, Looking at Buffalo's first two games, it seemed like Pittsburgh was able to get home with just four quite a bit. Um, And it seemed like Miami blitzed more and Allen looked a little bit more like himself. Um, Would it be too much of an oversimplification to take a lesson from that, that it's a really, you know, particularly important game for your front four to get home without blitzing this week? Um, is, it, is there a lot on them? You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm never, never one to sit up here and talk about game plan specific items. You know, clearly um, Pittsburgh and Miami had different approaches and, and the games unfolded differently in both cases, right? So, you know, Miami typically is a man cover team. That's what they do. That's, that's what they do every day of the week and, um, and, and Pittsburgh is, is different. Uh, so, you know, we and and we're different. So, you know, we are who we are, uh, and those two teams are who they are. And um, 
you know, obviously you see the tape and you see some of the things that Buffalo likes to do, and um, you, know, you want to do all you can to slow that down. Yes, you do. So you get this nice, long, detailed question, and Jack's like, nah, man, I'm not answering that. Here was another instance of this. Here was an exchange on Wednesday for Jack Del Rio with Washington football team insider Sam Fortier of the Washington Post. With, with the safeties you've been using, I wonder if you're looking with those three guys, are you looking for specific packages or looks to, to get them in, or is it more of a general rotation? What, what are you referring to? The, the, the usage of your three safeties back there. Yeah, um, again, I, I don't really care to discuss, you know. Specific scheme. Right. I'm, I'm just wondering if it is a specific thing you're looking for, if it's more of a general rotation. Like we're going to utilize, we're going to utilize the players that we have. Um, we're going to put together a plan and utilize the players that we have available. And, um, and sometimes you'll see them together. Sometimes they're separate, but they're, they're all going to play. <laughs> there you go. Another classic Jack Del Rio answer. I love it. What I don't love is how Jack's defense is played through two games. The defense needs to be better. Hopefully it is better Sunday at the Bills. Well, someone who was better on Wednesday night was Josiah Gray. I'm talking nationals after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the Nationals on Wednesday night did it. Uh, They guaranteed that they will not have a 100-loss season this season. That is a bar of supremely low achievement, I know, but such is the state of the Nats this season. And actually, there was a lot to like from the Nats on Wednesday night. A 7-5 win at the Miami Marlins to win two or three games in the series. The Nats now are 63 and 89 on the season. Yes, no 100 loss season for the 2021 Nats. Davey Martinez, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. That's right, Davey, the boys. They may lose 99 games this season, but the boys will not be losing 100 games this season. Nats still have not had a 100 loss season since the back-to-back 
100 loss seasons in 2008 and 2009. Juan Soto is on fire right now. More on him in a bit. But the biggest bright spot for the Nats on Wednesday night was a much-needed strong start from Josiah Gray. Josiah Gray was good for the first time in five starts. And with the complete collapse of the national starting pitching this season, it matters a lot that Josiah Gray ends up being a hit. Josiah Gray and Kbert Ruiz, the top two prospects in the batch of four prospects who the Nationals got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the top trade of the late July sell-off. Josiah Gray is one of the premier pitching prospects in baseball. He needs to be a hit for the Nationals. Make no mistake about it. Given the situation with Steven Strasburg, him coming off thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, uh, given the situation with Patrick Corbin, him having completely fallen off a cliff over the last two seasons, given the lack of organizational pitching depth, Josiah Gray needs to be a hit. And hopefully we're in the process of him being a hit. He had not been pitching well over his last four starts. He was back to pitching well on Wednesday night. Two runs in six innings, eight strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just six hits, a triple, a double, and four singles. He threw 71 strikes versus 29 balls on 100 pitches. The control problems that played Gray in his previous outing were not in effect on Wednesday night. Gray's previous outing, 9-8 loss to the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park this past Friday night. Five runs in five into third innings. He issued four walks into wild pitch in that game. Gray was much better in this 7-5 win at the Marlins on Wednesday night. And yes, I get that he was facing the lowly Marlins, one of the worst hitting teams in the majors. But again, Gray had not been pitching well. Uh, he gave up a run in the bottom of the fourth on a two-out double by Lewis Brinson to the left center field gap, followed by a two-out RBI single by Lewin Diaz on a softly hit ball to left field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-1, and Gray allowed a run in the bottom of the six on a one-out triple by Brian De La Cruz on a 1-2 pitch on a ball that got under the backhanded glove of Juan Soto as he was running toward the right field line. Probably was a play that Soto should have made. Ends up going down as a triple, and then the run scored on a one-out RBI single by Jesus Sanchez to center field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-2. But otherwise, very good night for Josiah Gray. Yes, he had been bad over his previous four starts, but remember, he had been quite good over his first five starts for the Nats. Uh, Josiah Gray over his first five starts for the Nats, 28 total innings, ERA at 289, whip of 111, strikeouts per nine innings of 932. So this now makes it six good outings out of 10 outings for Josiah Gray with the Nationals. He's probably going to have two more starts the rest of this season. So if he could make it that he finishes with eight good starts, you know, and it's good to varying degrees, but eight good starts are pretty good starts versus four bad ones. Uh, I think you can live with that if you're a Nationals fan, but I really can't emphasize this enough. Josiah Gray needs to prove to be a hit. Uh, the Nationals ended up having to use four relievers on Wednesday night. Three were good, uh, one was not, and one necessitated the usage of the fourth reliever. So Austin both Toss a scoreless bottom of the seventh, despite giving up a leadoff double to Eddie Alvarez on a 1-2 pitch. Patrick Murphy tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth. Ryan Harper in the bottom of the ninth failed to close out the game. Ryan Harper was a problem. Uh, the Nats are leading 7-2. The Nats had no business having to use a fourth reliever in this game, but Harper couldn't get the job done. He faced four batters, got just one out, gave up a leadoff single to Lewin Diaz on an 0-2 pitch, gave up a two-run homer to pinch hitter Nick Fortes, and then gave up a one-out full-count solo homer to Sandy Leone, but the revived Tanner Rainey then came in and slammed the door shut, faced two batters, got the final two outs of the game. All right, so Juan Soto, what a game for Juan on Wednesday night. He got on base five more times 
This guy is a freak of nature. He went three for three with a two-run homer, a double, a single, and two walks. Soto in the top of the first had a two-out double to the right center field gap. Soto in the top of the third blasted a first-pitch two-run homer to right field for a 3 nothing Nats lead, the homer his 27th homer of the season. Soto in the top of the fifth drew a five-pitch walk. Soto in the Nats' three-run seventh had an opposite field RBI single to left center field for a 5-2 Nats lead. And Soto in the top of the eighth made some history. He drew a two-out intentional walk, tying Bryce Harper's record for most walks in a regular season by a Nats player at 130. Now, the season in which Bryce drew 130 walks was not his 2015 National League MVP season. The season was actually Bryce's final season with the Nats, 2018. That was an odd season for Bryce. He only had a batting average of 249, but he had an on-base percentage of 393, thanks to him drawing 130 walks that year. Soto now has drawn 130 walks this season. The guy is hitting out of his mind. I mean, any notion of that late July sell-off rendering Soto, you know, handcuffed in terms of him just never getting any more hits because teams are pitching around him. I mean, look, teams are still pitching around him, but he is capitalizing on like every hittable pitch that he gets. And he is getting some hittable pitches. I think the success of Josh Bell has had something to do with that. But Soto has just been remarkable with what he's doing. Soto over the three games in this series goes six for 10 with a homer, two doubles, three singles, and six walks. Soto now has a major league leading on base percentage of 466. He has a major league leading 130 walks. He has a slugging percentage of 544. He has an OPS of 1,010, as yes, his OPS for the season is now above 1,000. And if you care about batting average, and I really don't, but I know that some people do, Juan Soto now, as we speak, is number one in the National League in batting average at 321. So he's number one in the majors and on base percentage and number one in the National League in batting average at 321. And I tell you what, when it comes to who should be the National League MVP, Juan Soto is no longer like a token candidate. Juan Soto is no longer someone who like deserves some consideration. Juan Soto is now very much in the thick of the National League MVP race, and he may well be the front runner. He may well be the most deserving recipient of the National League MVP award. Now, I don't know that he's going to get it, okay, because I know that there will be plenty of voters who penalize Soto for playing on a bad team, even though to me, who wins MVP should have little, if anything, to do with the success of that player's team. MVP is about the best player in the league that season, the player whose season you would most want if you were a general manager of a team. It has nothing to do with your teammates. It's not Juan Soto's fault that the Nationals are a bad team this season. But take a listen to this. If you go by wins above replacements, okay, war, and we'll use the baseball reference version, Juan Soto entering games on Wednesday was number one among all position players in the National League in war per baseball reference at 6.7. Like, you look at some of the other primary candidates for National League MVP, okay? Bryce Harper, the ex-Nat, all right? He's having a very good season for the Philadelphia Phillies. But Bryce Harper entered games on Wednesday, fourth in the National League among position players in war per baseball reference at 5.5. Fernando Tatis of the San Diego Padres, another primary candidate for National League MVP, 
He entered games on Wednesday, second among National League position players in war for baseball reference at 6.3. Not that war is the end-all be-all when it comes to who should win MVP in a league, but I think that's telling. Like, the Juan Soto candidacy isn't just about a bunch of walks in a high on-base percentage. The Juan Soto candidacy is also about when you put everything together, okay? And that's what wins above replacement does. It takes a player's contributions in their totality, your batting, your base running, your defense. Juan Soto is the number one position player in the National League this season for baseball references version of war entering games on Wednesday. And he was the number two player in the National League in baseball references version of war entering Wednesday. The only guy in the National League who had a higher baseball reference war this season than Soto had, uh, Zach Wheeler, the Philadelphia Phillies ace. So yeah, I mean, I don't know that Soto's going to win National League MVP. I don't know that he's going to even be like among the three finalists. But I know this, he should be among the three finalists. And more and more, I think people should come around to the idea of Juan Soto being the MVP of the National League this season. Uh, Some other standouts for the Nationals in this win at the Miami Marlins on Wednesday night. So two Nats who were guilty of major boo-boos in the Nats' loss at the Marlins on Monday night ended up having really good series. Nats lost at Miami 8-7 in 10 innings on Monday night. And Luis Garcia played a big role in that. Luis Garcia on Monday night as the automatic runner in the top of the 10th with the game tied at 7, inexplicably did not score on Lane Thomas's leadoff opposite field double to right field. But Garcia, over the three games in this series, ended up going 6 for 14 with a homer, two doubles, and three singles. Garcia in this 7-5 win at the Marlins on Wednesday night, two for five with a solo homer and a double. He in the top of the second had a one-out double off the left center field wall. He in the top of the fourth had a one-out first pitch solo homer to the second deck in right field for a 4-0 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 404 feet per stat cast. Uh, Garcia is slugging 532 in this month of September. He's having a really nice month. Good for him. And Alcides Escobar. So he on Monday night had two big defensive miscues in three run innings for the Marlins. But Escobar over the three games in the series ended up going six for 14 with a double, five singles and two walks. Escobar on Wednesday night, two for four with two singles and a walk. He in the Nats two run third had a leadoff single to left field. He in the top of the fifth drew a leadoff eight pitch walk despite having been down in the count at 1.02. And Escobar in the Nats three run seventh had a full count single on a weekly hit ball to shallow right center field. That's what Alcides Escobar does. He is the king of the garbage hit, but he gets a bunch of hits. He gets on base. You know, he's very good when Dowden counts 0-2-1-2. He's very good in terms of plate coverage, putting bat on ball, making contact. And when you make a bunch of contact, uh, you end up getting more hits than you otherwise would, right? Because you're putting a bunch of balls in play. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez had a good game on Wednesday night. Two for five with a solo homer and an RBI double. Uh, Yadiel in the top of the second smashed a leadoff homer to center field for a one nothing Nats lead. The homer going a projected 399 feet for a stat cast. Uh, Yadiel in the Nats three-run seventh had a one-out opposite field RBI double into left field to beat the shift on an 0-2 pitch for a 7-2 Nats lead. It's a unique deal with Yadiel Hernandez. This is his age 33 season. This, though, is technically his rookie season. Uh, I don't think he's an everyday outfielder, but as a number four outfielder, you could do a lot worse than Yadiel Hernandez. He over 270 plate appearances this season has an OPS of 749. Well, speaking of older players, uh, so Alex Avila was the Nats starting catcher on Wednesday night. And Avila actually had a productive game. He went two for four with a double, a single, 
and a hit by pitch. I tend to think the reason that Avila was an at starting catcher was that Josiah Gray was pitching. Josiah had been struggling, and so Davey Martinez wanted a veteran receiver as the Nats starting catcher. Uh, Avila is also from the Miami area, and given that Avila is retiring, I think this is kind of a tip of the cap from Davey to Alex. And look, Alex Avila comes off like a great guy, so this is nothing personal against him. But like I said, Alex Avila is retiring, okay? Alex Avila, in a pregame press conference this past Sunday, announced that he will be retiring at the end of the season. And yet Alex Avila, in being the Nats starting catcher on Wednesday night, started for a second time in five games and appeared in a game for a third time in five games. Uh, I'm sorry. That's too much for a guy who's not going to be on the team next season, who's not going to be in baseball next season. The Nets right now are playing out the string. The Nets right now need to play as many young players as possible. And, you know, one game on a Wednesday night at the Marlins in late September isn't the end of the world. Like, I totally get that. But the Nats have a catcher in Riley Adams, who A, has been really good, but B, has barely been playing lately, okay? The Nats are pretty committed right now to Kbert Ruiz as the everyday catcher, as the Nats should be, and Ruiz has been better lately, was really good offensively over the first two games in this series, but Ruiz does not start game three of the series, but Alex Avila does, and Riley Adams doesn't. Alex Avila, like I said, has started two of the Nats' last five games. Riley Adams has started just one of the Nats' last 11 games. That's inexcusable to me, okay? Like, Riley Adams has done nothing to warrant playing less. His only sin is that he's a catcher, and the Nats have a more highly touted catcher now in Kbert Ruiz. But Riley Adams should be playing, certainly should be playing over Alex Avila. And again, none of this is like an indictment of Alex Avila. Seems like a great dude, has had a nice career, you know, all the best to him in retirement. But this is his only season with the Nats. It's not like he's some longtime Nat who deserves to be out there a bunch and deserves to, you know, have a goodbye tour over these final few weeks of the season. Like, no, okay? He's Alex Avila. He was your backup catcher this season. The Nats parked him on the 10-day injured list for two months because the Nats had no interest in bringing him back, wanted to see these young catchers. So yeah, like I'm not trying to get all worked up over again, a game at the Marlins on a Wednesday night in late September during the lost season. But uh, I want to see more Riley Adams. And you had a shot to do this on Wednesday night. uh, And the Nats did not do this. Next up for the Nats, a four game series at the Cincinnati Reds, Thursday through Sunday, game one, Thursday night at 640. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. So we on Wednesday had a game for the Orioles, and we had news with the Orioles. We'll start with the game, a 4-3 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on Wednesday night. O's end up losing 2-3 in the series. Now are a Major League worst 48-104 with a Major League worst run differential of minus 276. We did get more production from Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins. Austin Hayes remains locked in. He was the Orioles starting right fielder and number three batter. Went one for three with an RBI double and a walk. Hayes in the top of the six had a one-out RBI double off Phillies ace Zach Wheeler to left field. You know, it's interesting with Hayes. Not only did he continue to produce in this series, but uh, he batted in each of the Orioles' top three lineup spots in this series. Hayes in the 2-0 win at the Phillies on Monday night was the Orioles starting left fielder and number one batter. Hayes in the Orioles 3-2 inning loss at the Phillies on Tuesday night was the Orioles starting left fielder and number two batter. And like I said, Hayes in this 4-3 loss at the Phillies on Wednesday night was the Orioles starting right fielder 
and number three batter, but he has been terrific lately. Cedric Mullins has been terrific throughout the season. Starting center fielder, number one batter on Wednesday night. One for four with a triple and a walk. Uh, Mullins in the top of the third with a two-out triple. Uh, Cedric Mullins now on the season. 302 batting average, 369 on base percentage, 535 slugging percentage. Also for the Orioles in this 4-3 loss at the Phillies on Wednesday night was a good start by Keegan Aiken. Uh, Keegan Aiken had one of his best outings this season. Uh, He allowed one run in five and a third innings, had six strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just five hits, all of which were singles. He threw 61 strikes versus 29 balls on 90 pitches. Uh, It has been an awful year for Keegan Aiken at the major league level, but good job by him, especially in dueling with the Phillies ace, uh, Zach Wheeler. Uh, Aiken came into the game with the following numbers at the major league level this season. 23 games, 16 starts, 89 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 693 a whip of 161. So anything remotely positive for Keegan Aiken down the stretch of this season, you take it and you run with it. And that was a positive outing for Aiken at the Phillies on Wednesday night. All right, to the news with the Orioles on Wednesday. So Brandon Hyde is coming back as Orioles manager for next season. Hyde, during his postgame press conference on Wednesday night, confirmed reports that he will be returning as Orioles manager for the 2022 season. It's been a bizarre situation because the Orioles, for whatever reason, have been very tight-lipped about Brandon Hyde's status, but he apparently signed a contract extension in the 2020-2021 offseason, so last offseason. The O's hired Brandon Hyde as their manager in December 2018, and I say the word December that way because the Orioles were very slow movers in that 2018-2019 offseason. Parted ways with Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette, but didn't hire a new leader of baseball operations until well into November that year. It was on November 16th, 2018, that the O's announced the hiring of Mike Elias as executive vice president and general manager. And then Elias ended up not officially hiring Brandon Hyde as Orioles manager until December 14th, 2018. I mean, normally a manager gets fired. The team's next manager is hired, I don't know, by late October, early November, mid-November, something like that. In this case, Brandon Hyde wasn't officially hired by the O's until mid-December. And we all know what the deal has been here. I mean, the Orioles have been a tanking team. Uh, Brandon Hyde's overall record as Orioles manager is abysmal. I mean, nobody's shocked by that. Uh, Brandon Hyde's regular season record as Orioles manager through games on Wednesday night, 127 and 247. 120 games below 500, a winning percentage of 340. I mean, that's atrocious. Everybody knows that, but Brandon Hyde was not brought here uh, to win, really. He was brought here to essentially act as a steward of the rebuilding process, you know? There's no way that you can judge Brandon Hyde on wins and losses. I mean, I look at Brandon Hyde and I think about a few things. So I think all things considered, he's done a fine job. I mean, it's, you know, it's really hard to evaluate him from like a strategic sense, but I think he's had the temperament for this. Uh, you know, he comes off as someone who does care about winning. So it's not like, you know, he's ingrating in these players just, hey, winning doesn't matter and you can all be a bunch of losers the rest of your career. Like, no, I think he's a competitive guy. We've seen that. Uh, But, you know, I don't think Brandon Hyde is the guy who's going to be the Orioles manager if slash when the team gets good again. You know, we see this all the time in baseball. You hire one guy. Normally, it's a younger guy. It's a guy desperate to get a managerial job 
to be the manager during all the losing years. And then once you're ready to get good and start winning, you fire that guy and you bring in a more veteran manager. You know, we saw the Nationals do that, right? When Davey Johnson became manager uh, in the 2011 season and then the Nats took off in 2012. We saw that with the Detroit Tigers with the hiring of Jim Leland as their manager when the Tigers finally got good again. And I would think that you're going to see something similar with the Orioles. I would be surprised if Brandon Hyde is the Orioles' manager when they're good again. That doesn't mean that that's right or fair, okay? Maybe Brandon Hyde is totally worthy of being the Orioles' manager when they get good again. But just I've seen this movie too many times in baseball to think that Hyde will still be the Orioles' manager when they get good again. But I like Brandon Hyde. He's fiery, man. I mean, that thing that happened between him and the Toronto Blue Jays ace, the former Nats prospect Robbie Ray, a few weeks back. I mean, I know it wasn't a great look for Hyde, but I don't know. It kind of made me like Brandon Hyde even more. So I'm talking about a 6-3 win over the Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on September 10th. Uh, Hyde in the bottom of the second of that game was heard on the telecast of the game on Sportsnet in Canada, taunting and cursing at Robbie Ray. This was hysterical. While the play-by-play announcer, Buck Martinez, who used to be a television analyst for the O's, was speaking, Hyde was going off on Ray, who at least according to Hyde, thought that people in the Orioles' dugout were talking trash. Uh, In case you missed it, here's how this all sounded. Bobby Ray looking over toward the Oriole dugout for some reason. Not sure what's going on with this delay here, but Martin has stepped out of the box. Brandon Hyde, he is arguing with somebody, I'm not sure who. Swing and a miss, got him with the fastball upstairs, big strikeout, first out of the inning. Well, that's who he's hollering at, he's hollering at Robbie Ray. This is kind of interesting. Yeah, so you clearly hear Hyde say to Ray, hitch the effing ball. We ain't saying S. What the F you looking at? Ray then motions at Hyde as if to say, come on the field and confront me. And Hyde says, what the F you gonna do? F off. Uh, that's Brandon Hyde. And I can appreciate that intensity. I can respect that competitiveness. I mean, was that his finest moment as a human being? Probably not. But, you know, sports aren't always about your finest moments as a human being. Next up for the O's, a seven-game homestand, four-game series against the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, followed by a three-game series against the Boston Red Sox at Camden Yards. Game one against the Rangers, Thursday night at 7.05. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 152, will be a Football Friday extravaganza. In-depth preview for the Washington football team's game at the Buffalo Bills Sunday afternoon at 1, including my rhyming keys for a Washington win at Buffalo, my prediction for the game, and a special guest, Bills insider Matt Perino of Syracuse.com, co-host of Shout! The Buffalo football podcast. Also, I'll give you my Goldilocks for college football week four, including a big game for Virginia on Friday night. Cavaliers home to Wake Forest. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you 
on Friday. With those three guys, are you looking for specific packages or looks to, to get them in, or is it more of a general rotation? What, what are you referring to? The, the, the usage of your three safeties back there. Yeah, um, again, I, I don't really care to discuss, you know. Specific scheme. Right. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.